Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back to episode 51. I have two esteemed guests joining us, Dr. Chuck Smith and Dr. Jason Hunt, renowned doctors specializing in addiction medicine who have triumphed over their own personal experiences of addiction, and both are now in recovery since 2009. They co-authored the groundbreaking book, Understanding Addiction, No Science and No Stigma, aiming to educate, empower, and eliminate the stigma surrounding addiction. In this episode, we delve into the innovative approach of medication-assisted treatment, known as MAT. Our discussion focuses on the unique challenges faced by pregnant women struggling with addiction, especially opiate use disorder, and emphasizes the importance of specialized care that prioritizes the health of both mother and unborn child. We also debunk myths surrounding MAT and dispel misconceptions about addicted babies or crack babies. Dr. Chuck Smith practices addictionology in South Florida, providing comprehensive patient care for addictive diseases. For more information about him, please refer to my episode descriptor. Dr. Jason M. Hunt is an assistant professor with the Department of Psychiatry's Division of Addiction Medicine at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Please also refer to the program descriptor for more information. Take a listen. Welcome, Dr. Smith. You are on episode 40, and it was great to have you back on episode 51. Thank you. Um, welcome, Dr. Hunt. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate your time. So glad to have you. So folks listening in, both are co-authors of the book, Understanding Addiction, No Science, No Stigma. And I want to congratulate both of you. Um, Dr. Smith told me that you celebrated your two years of publishing this book. Awesome. It was January, I think, 21st. Awesome. Great. Well, congratulations. So I want to, let's dive right in. Um, share a few things on how you both met and how this book came about and kind of, you know, what's the goal? Well, I met Jason uh, my first week in treatment. I think maybe he got there a couple of days before me and someone told me, had, had you met that doctor from Kentucky yet? He'd been more trouble than you. <laughs> so uh, we hit it off right then and. We stayed together basically like brothers from another mother. We went to halfway house together. We traveled to Florida together. We went to the University of Florida together. And basically that's what started our relationship was the meeting in detox at uh, mm-hmm. 2009, right before Christmas. Wow. Amazing. And how did this book come about? Dr. Hunt, what do you think about meeting Dr. Smith? Both of you guys were in trouble, obviously, and and really trying to get your lives back on track. How did this book come about? And um, what's the goal? Well, I think in the beginning, you know, uh, misery loves company. So I think (laughs) me and uh, (laughs) you talked to me off pretty quick. You know, if I was the worst one there, he was the second worst. Um, (laughs) And Chuck had always had the, the vision of, of doing a book, and, and I, from the get-go, thought it was a great idea. And, um, you know, I kind of took notes over two years, and, you know, I think uh, Dr. and Chuck actually, you know, kind of even worked even a little bit harder, and then he was uh, more persistent. And I was I'm procrastinating by nature. Recovery doesn't fix everything, unfortunately. Um, and uh, due to Chuck's persistence, uh, we got the book done, and, uh, and we're both very proud of it. 
I think it's been really helpful. I know I have read it multiple times. It's a very quick read, at least 45 minutes and you're done, but it's packed with so much stuff. So again, congratulations. And both of you have been in, in recovery since 2009. Is that correct? Yeah. All right. And all the way through. So how long has that been then? Well, this, uh, this December, it'll be uh, 14 years. That's amazing. And both of you are practicing physicians at this time, correct? Yeah. So that it's been a it's been a really long road. And when I spoke to Dr. Smith um, in our earlier episode in forty, he mentioned that you know he learned a lot and it was a long road. And he didn't think he was going to get his license back, but because of the treatment that both of you received, the PHP, it's been probably the most successful type of approach to treatment. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. I I think uh, the the physician I was involved with two physician health plans, one in West Virginia and one in Florida, uh-huh. but they played an integral part in my recovery. The physician health plans both ensure that you get proper, good treatment right. and monitoring, so they ensure abstinence throughout that period. And uh, without that, my success rates probably wouldn't have been any different than the general public. But because I had the benefit of those plans. Similar to what airline pilots use, similar to what nursing use, um, I was benefited of the best treatment, the best monitoring. Certainly then I had to comply. I had to be a compliant patient. But short of that, everything else was put in front of me. And I really give Jason credit for getting us back into medicine. He was one that, that kept pursuing which state we could go to uh, in Florida. There uh-huh. was a pathway to get into the Addiction Medicine Fellowship. So once we got accepted to the fellowship, then it was our mission to uh, petition the state board to get a life. Great. Well, I'm so glad that you guys were able to find each other and help each other get through medical school and actually have this book because with, I, I have to say it's really a helpful book. There are two areas that I want to really discuss um, is the medication-assisted treatment, which is becoming more and more popular, hopefully, and and Please, Dr. Smith, you are a specialist in this. And then the second topic, which blends in with medication-assisted treatment, is treatment for pregnant women um, who are addicted. Those are one of the most complicated populations, I think, and so worrisome as a provider. Um, having treated some women who are pregnant, it is really scary. But there's a lot of myths to demystify as well, so we'll get that too. But in the beginning, let's just talk about, like, what is medication-assisted treatment? would love to hear your kind of your uh, approach to why it's so effective and how did it start. Well, medication-assisted therapy now primarily deals with opiate use disorder. Okay. We certainly use the medications for alcohol and for anti-craving for other drugs. But when we, we talk about MAT or medication-assisted therapy, we're talking about opioid use disorder treatment. Uh-huh. And there's three three types. The oldest is methadone, right. which has been around for many years. It's actually controlled by the federal government. So the methadone clinics have to be licensed to a special federal license. Right. But methadone over the years has a good track record for sobriety, a good track record in preventing deaths, crime, other diseases. So sure. I certainly don't want to throw any rocks at it. Right. The difference is methadone is a full agonist to the opioid receptor. The ones that are most popular now, at least with, with physicians like myself and Jason, 
is buprenorphine, right. suboxone, subutex, sublocate. And here's our advantages there. It's a partial agonist. Right. So it doesn't fully stimulate that receptor. So things that don't happen are things like euphoria or high. They don't happen. What happens is that due to a high affinity, the buprenorphine molecule attaches to those receptors and prevents craving. And the patient basically just feels normal. So they and can't get high, basically. Correct. That's correct. a downer for yeah, some, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> for some people. <laughs> Shit. Like most, most patients, when they come see right. seeking help, they really were only using to try to feel normal anyway. And is this also used for detox? Yeah, it is. That, that's, our, that's our substance that we use for opioid detox. Right, right. So what guidelines, like, can any physician, like, do this, prescribe it at this point? Now, now they can. What oh, good. Okay. December of 2022, they removed something that was called the X wave. Okay. Before, only physicians who pursued buprenorphine prescribing through a special course were allowed to prescribe it. But due to the opioid crisis, the federal government got involved and they removed that waiver in December of 2022. So now any physician or practitioner who has the full DEA capabilities can prescribe buprenorphine. Awesome. And this is, again, targeted for opiate use disorder specifically. Yeah. Okay. It, it also has an indication for chronic pain. It's a fair medicine for chronic pain, right? but it's primary development. And when it became available in 2002 for physicians and providers to prescribe, that was its indication with opioid use disorder. Got it. And what are some of the, the risks, contraindications of this medication? Well, certainly we are concerned. We started at low doses. There's a minimal risk of respiratory depression, uh -huh. especially with other medications that could possibly cause respiratory depression, such as benzodiazepine, right. such as alcohol. Mm -hmm. But when it's used solely by itself, it's a very safe medication. There is a physical tolerance that develops. So when patient does stop it or if they run out of the medicine, there's a withdrawal syndrome that happens with it. Mm -hmm. Much, much less with injectable buprenorphine, the sublocade, because it lasts for six, eight, nine months. So the levels drop so slowly, there's virtually no withdrawal when you use injectable buprenorphine, which is once a month. And wouldn't you say, now when would you use that? For me, I would say everybody who qualifies for this kind of intervention um, I would say injectables would be better, wouldn't it, in terms of it, consistency? I, I agree. I believe, I believe injectable is better. Some patients have a little aversion to it, but once I explain the pros and cons, and it's mostly pros, most now I'm finding in my practice uh, choose that. And what do you think that the common misconceptions or stigmas surrounding uh, medication-assisted treatment might be? I mean, we talk about, you talk about stigma in your book. What, what, do you, what do you, have you faced with this? Well, the, the, big, the big myth now is that these patients are simply trading one drug for another. Uh -huh. And other physicians who aren't aware or educated on the topic or other patients look at it that way because they simply don't know. Uh -huh. uh, also, the belief that simply because there is a withdrawal component to it that these patients are somehow getting high. 
but they simply aren't getting high because it's only a partial agonist. It doesn't stimulate the euphoria, the, the highness that would go with it. It simply bathes the receptor and blocks any other opiates from getting through and causes them to feel normal. I have seen this to be life-saving. And how long has this medication been around? Since 2002, so about 21 years. So it's not brand um, new at all. No, even when me and Jason went to treatment in 2009, yeah. it, it wasn't used a lot. There were specialty suboxone clinics that you would see. Right. Mostly then it was used for detox. So people went through five, six, seven, ten days of opiate detox, buprenorphine, then right. they were tapered off of. Now, any patients that I come to with opioid use disorder, I offer them medication-assisted therapy, either with buprenorphine or if they choose to use naltrexone or Vivitrol, opiate block. Much, much more success we're seeing with buprenorphine, though, both in patient compliance and in success in treatment. Oh, that's interesting because I've seen Vivitrol to be pretty successful um, but the buprenorphine, is that the sublocade? Those are different. No, uh, Vivitrol is now, now, now oxone, right. uh, naltrexone, sorry. But the sublocade is buprenorphine. Right, those are very different medications. They're very different medications, yeah. So one's purely a blocker, Vivitrol or naltrexone. The other is the partial agonist. So with... Like Vivitrol, what kind of patient would do the sublocate and what kind of patient would do like a Vivitrol? Both are injectable. So what would the difference be? My decision-making there, I involve the patient. So there's a personal decision on the patient's side. Do they have an aversion to wanting to take it, not wanting to take a controlled substance? Maybe their parents, maybe their family, maybe worried about answer care. And they simply say, look, I've had enough. I just want my opiate receptors blocked. Mm -hmm. The problem is it doesn't relieve craving as well as buprenorphine or whether it's sublocate, suboxone, or subutex. So there's certainly a time period there that they're at risk to relapse. And that's a shorter period, right? It's within that first month. Right. It's within that first month. I certainly worry about, now, the other problem is, with Vivitrol or, or now Octone, mm-hmm. now Trexone, I have to wait a couple of weeks after their last opiate before I can give it. So that's a two-week at-risk period. Right. So and the reason for that is if you gave it to them before that period, what would happen? What we call precipitated withdrawal. Right. So if they go right in. opiates left on those receptors, even right. the remnant, they have a, an exacerbation of opiate withdrawal. That's pretty horrible. Yeah. I mean... They wish they could die, right? I mean, exactly. We always say the alcohol and benzo patients can die. The opiate patients want to die. They they do, for sure. But again, like, I think, you know, some of the challenges in the AA community and not to diss anything, but I think stigma keeps coming up, you know, especially when there's there's subcultures of, of addiction, like there's people who suffer from alcohol addiction and then opiates addiction and then crack cocaine addiction. I mean, there's different cultures within that, right, and different types of mindsets. Um, one's more accepted than the other. Is that what you find to be true? Yes, and I, 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 there is. Um, so far, we really do try to educate the 12-step community. I'm certainly a member of the 12-step community myself. Right. So I try to educate them on the science of medicated assisted therapy, 
some are resistant. Well, those those roots to those programs go back to the 1930s, and there haven't been a lot of changes. Many right. of them look at it really as gospel, right. or that they were divinely inspired, so they don't want them changed at all. But even in their own doctrine, you know, this is looked at as an outside issue. They're there specifically to avoid their drug of choice, whether it be alcohol, cocaine, or or opiates. Right. I have seen some. Some improvement there. I, I know back in 2009, it basically was they weren't considered sober if they were on buprenorphine. I do think that's changing. Maybe not as fast as we'd like it to change, but, I, but I'm, I'm optimistic. I love that. Also, what do you think the biggest misconception is in treatment facilities? I mean, I, I don't know if you're working in a treatment facility or working in conjunction with them, but are you finding that this is more common is using the injectables or using the cyblocaine or, or those kinds of medications? I think some physicians themselves just have an aversion that they know, wait a minute, you tell me you have a patient who has a problem with opiates and you're going to inject with a long-acting opiate. They just have an aversion to that. I, I understand. The, and I'm sure if you asked me 10 years ago, I would have had a problem with the two. But with the opioid crisis, over 100,000 yeah. people dying last year, we're, we're in a crisis. Right. So this one works. We have evidence-based medicine to show it works in preventing death. Mm-hmm. So I don't really care if someone says, well, what happens when three years when they're still on sublocate? I said, well, what happens is that we still have a patient. <laughs> right. They're three years talking about it. <laughs> exactly. And modern science moves along. We come up, we come up with many different things, but without it, either opiate blockade with Vivitrol or buprenorphine, these patients are super high risk to die. It's just too big a chance to take. Right. And so I'm so glad that, you know, where I work, we were all about medication assisted treatment specifically for opiate use disorder. And is it is it true in your experience that you're seeing more and more doctors do this? Yes, it, 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 like it hasn't been quite as fast as, right. as I would have wanted. I work at five different treatment centers there in South Florida, and right. as progressive as you would think and liberal as South Florida is, it's been slow to happen because of the strong influence of the twelve step abstinence based program. And it's been a difficult tell, but in the, in the end of the day, they can't argue with the success of the evidence-based medicine study. This is saving lives. Can you cite some of that, some of that data? Actually, I didn't have it right in front of me, but it's in, it's in many of our addic- addiction medicine journals. And there's been many studies all the way from Scandinavian study just to down to the personal experience of all of the addiction medicine doctors across the country. We don't lose patients who are on this type of therapy to opioid overdose, we lose the others at dramatic rate. And, and speaking of which, you know, I don't know elderly necessarily opiate addicted folks. They don't survive, right? They Good really point. don't. Um, and so now with this advent of MAT, we're seeing a lot more numbers increase on survival rates and actual people recovering. And so I think exactly. it's a godsend. You know, and even though it's been around for two decades, um, it still seems fairly new to the treatment industry. Well, you know, our signal crisis is fairly new also. That's true. Your your, uh, ancestors' heroin is not available anymore. 
as risky as it was, it's nowhere near the lethality of the fentanyl or car fentanyl that's on the street these days. Right. And I was talking to Dr. Hunt earlier, and I wanted to ask you, there's this new FDA, I think, approved medication for fentanyl, similar to like naloxone, isn't like the nasal spray? Isn't there something like that? Just It's a, it's a um, Dr. Hunt may know a little more about it than me. I just know it's a very high powered Narcan. Okay. I don't know exactly the magnitude of the strength. Right. You know, Jason? The no, I put, it off, I put it off on you as well. I take the longer acting, stronger medication because, yeah. you know, it. Uh, fentanyl overdose, sometimes they have to give repeated doses of two, three, four, five, just yeah. filling. And so what they've done is they just made a long-lasting, stronger Narcan, Naloxone. And do we know how efficacious that is at this point, at this time? Or is it fairly new? We don't have a lot well, of... Well, it's going to be the same medication. So, as you know, it's probably, you know, I haven't seen any numbers anybody's put out, but it's probably going to definitely reduce the number of Narcan <laughs> doses you have to give. Right, which... Would be because amazing. in a hospital, they come into the ER. A lot of times, they just put them on a, a Narcan drip. So they just run it in consistently, nonstop. Oh, wow. Okay. Huh. Well, I'm just glad that that's happening and, you know, that the FDA is catching up to what actually is happening in, in our communities. One more question, Dr. Smith, is for long-term use, is there any, any negative impact on being on this for years? No, no, okay. actually, uh, opiates in general don't don't have the organ problems of uh, brain, heart, lungs, liver, kidney. Certainly, there's no acetaminophen in this, there's no non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent. So, uh, physically and mentally, there really isn't a downside. And I said the big advantage now is with the injectable, and I don't even have to go through a big song and dance as far as withdrawal coming off of buprenorphine. So once their brain is healed, their dopamine reward system is healed, they've developed good coping skills. Mm-hmm. They have a sober support group. They have recovery capital in their life. Right. Then that is the time to consider coming off of it and it was supplicated to breathe. With Suboxone, it is impossible, but it's a little hard. Right, because of withdrawal. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really good point because I wouldn't subscribe to saying to someone just do map meds and that's it. That's your recovery plan. Third. Right. I think it's important yeah. to note that you need more you around know, you. As, as we talked before, you know, it's just one prong of treatment. No different than I talked to my diabetic about medication, diet, and exercise. Right. Well, this medication assisted therapy is only one prong of treatment for opioid use disorder. Certainly, we can't discount the other prongs the therapy, the 12 steps, the coping skills, healthy living. Right. Good nutrition, good exercise. Those are all the things that's going to help the brain heal. Right. So I always compare it no different than any other disease that has different prongs of treatment. They're all necessary right. for the best prognosis. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And that's also really important to note that addiction is a disease and it needs Certainly. to be treated as such. And that's one of the the in your book that I really appreciate. Thank you so much for giving us an education around MAP medications. That actually comes into, you know, medication-assisted treatment with Dr. Jason Hunt. Thank you so much for being here again. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, pregnant women 
and addiction. It's a really scary combination and such a complex addiction. is such a complex disease anyway. Now we're talking about women who are pregnant. Oh my God, this is really scary. And coming from a place uh, many years ago, you know, it's like, oh my, how do we even treat this person? They can't use any kind of medication. It could be harmful for the baby. So there's so much fear, right, around this. So tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of, or demystify some of these things, like what really helps, you know, addicted pregnant women, especially with opiates. That's such a, such a scary thing. Well, in general, just to start off, uh, pregnant women are probably the most stigmatized group of people that suffer from addiction completely, right? right. Uh, anybody hears a pregnant woman's using drugs or delivering a baby that's positive for drugs, you know, there's not a lot of sympathy right out of the gate for that person. Absolutely. Um, they're not looked at as if that they have a disease. You know, even other people with addiction, you know, sometimes they can look at it, yeah, maybe they didn't have a choice. They they, you know, they have a disease, but a pregnant mother, no, there's no way she, you know, she should be able to stop. Right. Um, and you know, the miracle thing is about 20% do stop right? you know, just with they do. Uh, pregnancy alone, which is, uh, which is, uh, pretty amazing. But the vast majority, uh, if they do stop return to use and usually postpartum, um, mm-hmm. and in this country, it's sad to say that of developed countries, we have the highest or the only the only country or developed country where maternal mortality is increasing and maternal mortality is basically from conception to one year after uh, birth. And a large portion of that is after the baby's born, all the attention shifts to the baby and not the mother. And even without an addiction, we know how stressful it is for a mother to have a baby. So if the mother's receiving MAT, she still has regular follow-ups with her addiction doctor at monthly at the longest. So she can stay and we know that greatly reduces um, maternal mortality, but it also reduces mortality in general. When we talked about that study initially, right. um, when you asked about numbers, we know we just made MAT or uh, the ability to prescribe Suboxone without having to have the waiver. You know, right. in Europe did that in 1990. And in four years, they reduced their overdose deaths by 80%. Oh, my God. If we had done that in 1990, just think we've had over a million die. What we saved 800,000 lives. Right. Um, so just like in the regular population, it's just as bad or even worse in the in the pregnant population. And back in 2010, when there was a big cut down on pill mills across the country, and right. the, the, when the prescribing went down and everybody switched to heroin, the only population that continued to get addicted to pills and was the only population going up was pregnant women because doctors were still willing to prescribe pregnant women opiates for their pain second, third trimester. And uh, that was the only group that was still having a higher addiction rate to pills. Everybody else was going down because they weren't available. That's outrageous. That is so outrageous. (laughs) I, I can't even make sense about that. So tell us a little bit more, like, so treating, let's use the addicted pregnant mom um, who is addicted to opiates. How do you even treat um, a mom like that? So high risk. And you're right. And typically they come in, you know, and they want to stop everything. And it's got to be really difficult, especially with heroin, with opiates. So would you use MAP medications while they're pregnant? Well, yes, it, you with, if you don't, it's considered malpractice as far as I'm concerned. There's not one study or one 
that doesn't say that it saved lives, saves the mom's life, it saves the baby's life. There's really not one negative to using it, um, without a doubt. So yes, without a doubt, we would use uh, MAT, and and they've been using MAT, you know, ever since methadone was kind of the gold standard, and now buprenorphine is is kind of caught up because it can be given from a doctor's office, it can be given from their OBGYN. They don't have to go to the uh, clinic, as uh, Doctor Smith was describing right. earlier. So the key is, you know, treating all the other things. For one. It's so stigmatized in the pregnant population. Right. Pregnant mothers that are, use drugs are scared to seek help. And so they come in later for prenatal care. They almost always have issues of domestic violence or they, you know, they have polysubstance use. They have mental health disorders. There's a, the co-occurring in a pregnant woman who uses drugs is up into 65 to 90%. So it's, right. it's getting them the full continuum of care, getting it less stigmatized so they'll seek care. And we do know without a, without a doubt that if a pregnant mother goes on MAT, her likelihood of delivering a baby, a normal baby, no different than any a, a mother who delivers a baby who's not addicted to drugs, their outcomes are identical. That's amazing. Let's talk about that for a second. Even in your book, there's this myth about like crack babies and addictive babies, like pe- women who are addicted, they also have addictive babies is but that's not true is it right we've learned through you know that addiction is a chronic disease and just right. um you know some of it's semantics but the bottom line is a baby can't be born with a chronic disease or a chronic illness so to say that a baby's born addicted is really not possible to say a baby is born exposed to a drug or alcohol or Absolutely. say that a baby you know has withdrawal or is dependent that's different than saying a baby's addicted because what you hear addicted babies, that carries a stigma to it by itself. It Absolutely. not only shames the mother, but it shames the baby and the baby grows up, you know, maybe hearing it was, you know, a crack baby or, and mm-hmm. we know there's no such thing as a crack baby since you brought that up. There's no crack baby syndrome. We had babies that were born that were exposed to cocaine, mm-hmm. mothers who did cocaine and they did have withdrawal. And it was really just a way to kind of foster the war on drugs back in the 80s and 90s and incarcerate women uh, with the disease to kind of propagate that war on drugs. But once they looked back and really studied all those babies that were born exposed to cocaine, their development was really no different than their peer group or their cohort that wasn't exposed to cocaine. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I don't know how many people actually know that to be true. I, I don't. Not I mean, many. Right. I mean, there's a lot on it on the internet now that really talks about, you know, how that and how, you know, how that came about and all the studies they went back and, and looked at and mm-hmm. uh, really kind of dispelled that myth of the addicted baby or uh, uh, the term we were mentioning, you know, crack baby. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about neonatal abstinence syndrome. Tell me a little bit about what that is for a mom like this. Well, a neonatal abstinence syndrome is not only um, basically a neonatal withdrawal. Uh, it's, and it can be from, uh, there's neonatal uh, with opiate withdrawal syndrome, which is NALS, which is specific right. for opiate withdrawal. And neonatal abstinence syndrome could be any medication. You know, right. we know blood pressure medications and some antidepressants, uh, um, benzodiazepines, a lot of those other things. But we do know that it's an expected condition uh, for the most part, especially if a mother's using opiates, but it's a treatable condition, unlike, um, FAS, unlike right. you know, alcohol syndrome, which right. is uh, not treatable. And the number one cause of uh, developmental delay or cognitive 
impairment right. uh, in kids today, up to 40% of the right. cause of any cognitive issues in babies and the adolescents. So how do you treat this? So, so let's say with opiates, for a mom who's got opiate use disorder, there's going to be abstinence. But with the mat meds, does that help reduce the, the withdrawals and all of that also, I would imagine, correct? It does. And they've also done studies to show that you, that they've taken, you know, back in the day, stemming from two ma- mainly case reports, not studies, there was this fear that if you detox the woman off opioids, methadone or any other opioids, that the mother has a high risk of miscarriage or fetal demise or fetal death. And we know now through hundreds and hundreds of studies looking at that, that that's not the case. But it still doesn't mean we need to take these women off opiates because up to 95% will relapse. Right. And also, you know, we take the mother off opiates hoping that the baby won't have neonatal abscess syndrome or nows, right? And it really, the studies show it doesn't really reduce it that much, even if all. So the baby still has the, the withdrawal, even though the mother was taking off. And now the mother has a very high risk of relapse and maternal death if she's not on MAT. So the numbers play out. It's best to keep the mother on for mother and baby. Right. And I think that and is... And in the past, I was yeah. going to talk about, you talked about how to treat it. Back in the, in the past, there was... You know, once you found out a mother was using opiates, they had these really complex scales um, that were really difficult to read yes. um, to determine the level of withdrawal if they needed the ICU. And almost 100% at that time went into the ICU. Right. And we're finding out that that itself caused most of the problems in these babies. Just think about taking a baby away from a mother and putting it in a little glass cage three or four rooms down after it's been bonded to the mom for nine months, right? That baby's going to be stressed and it's going to show more signs of stress. So now we know if we take that baby and, and we put it on mom's chest and we have mom breastfeed um, when indicated, which almost all the time it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as they can feed, as long as they are sleep and can be consoled when they're crying, there's really no need to even treat them with morphine um, or especially put them in the ICU. And, and they go home with the mom much sooner and they're much healthier. And that just and makes sense. And the reason sense. I feel about it is it saves a lot of money. <laughs> that's what they like. Right. But this is so effective. I mean, if we just think about it, that's common sense. Why wouldn't you want to not, why wouldn't you stay close to your baby, right? Why, why wouldn't right. you do yes. that? Once we treat the baby like a baby, they do so much better than when we took them away from the mothers and put them in the ICU. Yeah. What, what a, what a, inter, you know, Novel. what a like Right. Right? I love that. It's like when you treat them like a baby, do they eat? Can they sleep? And can they be consoled? It seems very common sense, you know, but again, some things don't always work that way. So it's great that that has come back. And when did that kind of approach begin? You know, just, I wouldn't even be able to get, it just started showing up in the literature probably over the last, you know, five to 10 years at Yale, but I would say there's several Uh more studies that, that, uh, but it's taken a lot longer for it to work its way into hospital labor and delivery units, as well as uh, neonatal ICUs. You're seeing more and more hospitals now um, actually use that method. And again, it's probably driven by it saves the hospital a lot of money. But right. you know what? It also, if it's sending the baby home with mom and they're doing better, I'm all for that as well. Awesome. And so how do you think the healthcare providers balance the potential risks of medications with the need to address the addiction? As far as with the MAT right. or yeah. in pregnant women, mm-hmm. well, it should be offered to every pregnant woman. It, it really should. And the numbers bear out that they improve without a doubt. And I think 
more and more now OBGYNs are vastly aware of this. They've actually kind of really led the charge against this. Not only OBGYNs that are trained in addiction, but family practice that deliver babies as well as um, psychiatrists. So there's there's been a whole, again, movement to kind of help this population. And I think we're seeing great strides and improvements. I think that's amazing. That's super helpful because it's been a challenge to get to this point of how to treat a woman who's pregnant because of that stigma. And I, and it still is very prevalent, I would imagine. Is that true? Oh yes. Yes. But again, they still are, they, they, they still stay in hiding and they're, they're kind of scared to bring that up because of some mandatory reporting laws different states have different ones on when they have to report to DCF and, you know, for the most part, my experience is that DCF does a very good job with that. And they, the, you know, the last thing they want to do is remove a, a baby from a, a mother, right, or a family. Right. I'm, and and I'm glad to hear about that because there are ethical and legal considerations, regardless of what state you go to, just like you were talking about, Dr. Hunt. So what do you think the future holds for treating pregnant women with addiction? And MAT. Well, I think it, they're kind of the most stigmatized group, like I said at the beginning. Yeah. I think it's kind of holds true for everybody with the disease of addiction. The, the, the less stigma, the, the more treatment, the less uh, criminalization, uh, the, the more help they get, uh, the more improvement we're going to see, the more improvement in outcomes. And, and we're not going to get that, well, treatment doesn't work or they just didn't want it. We're going to, it's going to be, you, you know, you go to treatment, you, you follow the guidelines of doctor, therapist, addiction doctor, and right. you've got a very high success rate. Like we said, the physicians have this 96% five-year success rate, not because they're doctors, it's because they get at minimum the five years of some level of treatment. And it needs to be affordable and it needs to be accessible and we right. need adequate long-term treatment. That's a public health issue. Right. And because of that, there's some disparities, too, among women of color. Would you agree? Yes, yes. Um, no doubt about it. Uh, women of color are probably punished the most, uh, right. to yeah. be honest with you. And I think that the question goes to both of you, Dr. Smith and Dr. Hunt. It's stigmatizing for mothers, period, who are pregnant that are addicted, and now we have disparities of race also. And what do you think some of the things for the future needs to happen? I know you were talking, Dr. Hunt, about, you know, policy changes and educating doctors and all of that. What are we seeing now that can basically help advocate and support and ensure optimal care for these women? Well, not even too long ago, most treatment centers wouldn't even take on pregnant women. So they were really you know, they, they felt they were too high risk and there was very few places they could go to get really good long-term treatment. They had to go to more like halfway houses, transitional houses, sober living, or mm-hmm. even certain faith-based places. And very few places would, would treat a pregnant woman. So not only, uh, you know, so that makes it even more difficult, right? So now we're yeah. seeing more and more places pop up that just treat pregnant women. So we're having more availability. And uh, obviously if you you know, decriminalize and destigmatize. And, and if they know they get help early on, they're not going to have a criminal justice issue and they're going to uh, more likely go to treatment. They're going to likely get uh, prenatal care early and then they're going to have a healthy baby. And, you know, I think as a whole, right. you know, stigma is going to have to decrease for everybody. And, you know, um, a rising tide, what raises all ships, right? So it's right. kind of, kind of, we have to see it with uh, destigmatization and, and 
access to treatment and pregnant women will, will fit in that category as well. Right. It's a slow catch up. You know, I mean, they are the most stigmatized of all, to your point. So to have you both here is, is absolutely amazing. And I, I wanted to ask both of you, if a woman who's pregnant listening to this, who is addicted to opiates, what kind of things would you, if, you know, a woman who's scared to actually get into treatment, and I know it depends on what state and some of the laws, but what would, I mean, they, she, she needs treatment and she needs to save her life. What kind of things would you tell her out the gate? Well, right off the bat, I would have her want to seek prenatal care and, sure. you know, and research where she goes. But for the most part, like I said, lobies are much more, the fentanyl thing's been a game changer. That's kind of waking everybody up to um, addiction and opiate addiction because it's just killing people um, way more so than uh, all the other opiates combined. But as a pregnant woman who uses drugs or specifically uh, opiates seeks help, there's MAT. They can discuss that with them. They don't necessarily have to go to treatment. You know, they'll get a level of care. They may could do outpatient. They may could just do IOP or right, you know, they might right. not have to go into a facility. But if they were to get on MAT, which is the healthiest for them and the baby, um, that's where I would start. And then, you know, depending on the the, the nature of the severity of uh, her addiction or her opiate use disorder, then they could discuss on what level of care she should enter. Right. And and also, you know, the some of the biggest concerns is the safety of her ch unborn child. So if she's like, well, Dr. Hunt, that sounds all and good, but if I'm on this medication, is this a treatment? What is the damage to my unborn child? What right. are the, the risks? Right. The risks are much lower on MAT than off of it. I mean, the, the, the chance of her having a healthy baby, the option of having the healthiest baby, it would be for her to be on those medications. Right. And if because she's, we know, we know the, the risk of not being on them, which is usually, you know, usually continuing to use, which uh, using any opiate, especially fentanyl, is much worse than being on Suboxone or Subutex or Methadone. And there's no damage to the baby. It, it would be the, the risk of the, ch the chances of this baby being fairly healthy while the mother's on MAP meds is, is high, correct? Much better than if she's doing other opiates, yeah. street level opiates and fentanyl. Now, we don't really have any long-term studies that show, okay. you know, all the studies support that there's not a lot of long-term damage at all. So uh -huh. we, we can support that the baby, odds are this baby is going to develop uh, normally. And hit all the milestones in a normal fashion. I think that's really important because, A, as you know, stigma runs deep and the mom and moms are pretty shame-based. And like you said, you probably are seeing them later rather than sooner um, for care. So the, the hope is that, you know, people get educated, moms get educated, access to care is more available from a medical side, both of you teach addiction medicine. What kind of things are you guys teaching these the new students that are coming in around pregnant women and addiction? Well, I mean, we it's really, you know, there's always chapter sources that we talk about right. pregnancy and addiction, opiate use disorder. And, and most of it's really built around opiate use disorder because it's really kind of the highest and the, the, the most treated. Um, and it's, we don't separate it a whole lot from anybody else. Right, right. It. You know, we really talk about how the baby's much, you know, 
the odds of uh, delivering a healthy baby and uh, having a mother not overdose in within that first year postpartum, mm-hmm. uh, it's not even close. They do better on MAT than not. Right. And so, Dr. Smith, with MAT, this is being also shared in addiction medicine training for new physicians, correct? Is this standard to include MAT? Yeah, it's actually standard of care. And Jason, you know, basically he thinks it's malpractice not to offer to pregnant ladies. Absolutely. It definitely deviates from standard of care for me not to offer it to any of my opioid use patients. Right. Whether it be fentanyl or not, the majority that I get now are fentanyl. Occasionally I see some that still get prescribed oxycodone or hydrocodone, but that's a minority. So the fentanyl patients, some of the things we used to look at as relative contraindications, maybe they had bought Suboxone off the street. Maybe they sold Suboxone. Maybe they used Subutex IV. Those are all relative contraindications now because they're not full. We're talking about a patient has high likelihood of dying. Right. So, supplicate when we use it, it takes all those other things off the table because we're talking about no prescription to leave with them. They simply show up at the provider's office once a month. Take oh. a subcutaneous injection. Right. I think that's good. And do you use the injections also for pregnant women, Dr. Hunt? No. That's, as far as I know, that hasn't been used as much at this point, yes. I mean, postpartum, I, in my opinion, I think it would be fantastic. Right. For sure. And to be really clear, that pregnant women typically who are addicted of opiates um, probably were addicted prior to pregnancy. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. That's usually what I lead with. And no women becomes addicted while pregnant. They're always addicted prior to becoming pregnant. And it's it's always, I probably almost true 100% of the time. Right, right. I mean, I I think this is such an important topic, both medication-assisted treatment and treating pregnant women who are addicted. The combination is a very powerful way, and it's saving lives all over the country and all over the world. If there's any other last things that you would say that needs to happen in our like treatment facilities, for instance, what and if I'm a provider listening to this podcast and I'm a physician who basically, if you're a physician in treatment, you probably know about MAT. What kind of things would you like to see in the treatment facilities that might be missing? Well, I'll start, you know, a couple of things. One, I would say that if you're a primary care provider, any kind of medical provider, most of the time you kind of have an idea if one of your patients, you know, has a, a problem with drugs or alcohol. And for the mass, mass majority, we don't bring it up. And, you know, unless you're there specifically for an issue addressing that. Right. I What I'd like to say is that Bring it up. Uh, studies show that um, if you bring it up and, and you're trusted by your patient, about 76% of people will change their habits. So it, it's not, it shouldn't be a taboo subject. And you can really help a lot of people and make references and, you know, kind of give them options for levels of care of treatment. The other thing is insurances and them providing level, you know, the adequate treatment that they need. And we see that every time they're seems in my experience they're always cutting people short the doctors using yeah. asam criteria will recommend a certain level of care and a length of stay and it's always 
the insurance never comes back and says, oh, no, no, any longer than that. <laughs> they always come back. <laughs> I don't know of a time <laughs> when that happens on, I don't think, on the I, regular. I ever happened, right? It's no. the other way, right? Absolutely. So, I just think more education across the board. Now, I don't know how we change that ladder, but the former, is, you know, more doctors advocating for their patients, bringing it up and, and not treating it as this taboo subject, I think will help a lot of people. I, I agree. And and Dr. Smith, in our previous conversation, you talked about CAGE. Yeah, that crossed my mind again because Jason said, you know, it's part of routine health maintenance. Some sort of screening needs to be involved, no different than we take their blood pressure, that we check their lipid, but we're asking CAGE questions for substance use. It doesn't even have to be the doctor that asks it. It could be the intake person. As we talk about, you know, do you drink alcohol? Is it more than for men, more than two a day or more than 14 in a week. For women, more than one a day or more than seven in a week. There's some real clear-cut guidelines of who needs further evaluation. So that's one of the reasons we put the cage in the book. I want family members to be able to ask those four questions to see who's at risk and who should get further evaluation. I was also just thinking, I've been in medicine for a long time, 40 right. years, right. but I was thinking, you know, when I first started, just think about cholesterol and hypertension. Both were on our forefront due to the uh, studies out of Framingham to show increased risk of heart disease. We have the same ability now right. to confront addiction when it would be with preventive medicine, with screening questionnaire. Certainly, we don't have to wait till the fentanyl overdose comes to emergency room. Right. But once it does, then we have a designated plan. They're not just treated with Narcan sent home. We know that's the highest risk of dying. So Palm Beach County, actually in Florida, has a very good study and program going on of how they're managing fentanyl overdoses through the emergency room program. So they have a specific hospital that now admits these overdoses to rehab and gets them plugged in very quickly to MAT. Uh, wow. Soon I'll be able to send you, I'm sure they're going to publish it, but it was at our last uh, Florida Society of Addiction Medicine meeting. They gave a talk, very aggressive approaches to overdose. So I think both those aggressive approaches to overdose or suspicion of drug use, but also health maintenance, screening involved, no different than I would screen for any other chronic disease. Absolutely. I, I think that would be fantastic. And the more that can happen, better, like access, education, destigmatization, data, data, data. Like there's a science to this. You know, we know this stuff works. We know MAT works. We know that it can be treated for pregnant moms with opiate addiction. Who knew? Um, there's no such thing as a crack baby. That's really important to know. And the sooner you get treatment, the better, whether you're pregnant or not. And I think you said also that if the medical profession were all educated with all of this, I wonder how that would affect treatment. Certainly, wouldn't. I went to school earlier than Jason, but even where Jason went, addiction probably wasn't touched on much at all, an hour or two. University of Florida did start making it mandatory that they do a rotation with us at, the, at their <sighs> medical school. I take students from many of the osteopathic schools around the country do rotations with me. I do a lot with nurse practitioners also and psychiatric residents from Aventura Hospital. So I think things are, things are changing, but we like it to change faster, naturally. But all we can do is what we can do. 
Absolutely. Well, both Dr. Smith and Dr. Hunt, I thank you so very much for talking about this openly and with such heart and knowledge. I think this is an important conversation for us to keep having because of the epidemic crisis that we're seeing. And because of COVID, we saw even more of the disparity and the need for services, such as the things that you guys were talking about. Again, thank you so much. I appreciate your time, and I would love to get you back on here and talk more about this stuff. We can, I could talk about this all day long. I think it's such an important piece for the whole picture of destigmatizing addiction, treating it as an illness and disease like cancer, like diabetes, once we can get that mindset, perhaps we can have things more open to what Jason was saying, more, you know, different criteria or, you know, insurance companies being more apt to talk about extending care and all these other things and having women, pregnant women come in more often um, and earlier um, and not have to die. And hopefully that those fatality numbers can, can be reduced. Doctors, anything else you would like to add? I, I like the point that, you, that we have a phrase in a confection of our book that talks about contingency management. And, you know, now insurance companies are starting to learn to give discounts for controlled blood sugar, for dropping A1C, for actually patients losing weight. So I think the same should be offered for patients who undergo addiction screening, for patients who undergo a decrease or abstinence from nicotine, from alcohol or any other mind-altering substances that maybe voluntarily give urine drug screen. What would be wrong with that? Especially safety-sensitive position people. I know we don't want our bus drivers and airplane pilots who are high. Right, or physicians. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I I, I would definitely advocate for all physicians. Absolutely. Yes. Well, I I, I appreciate that. Contingency management would be offering a reward. Because we know motivation during active addiction is difficult to find. So offer some motivation towards the healthy living and recovery. It's been very effective in many studies in California with methamphetamine. Absolutely. And other countries do this too. They Uh incentivize some of this stuff. And it just definitely could be a really amazing movement. Dr. Hunt, anything else you would like to add? I just wanted to thank you for having us on. I appreciate it. I think uh, a lot of good information there. And I'll, I'll be back anytime you need me. Again, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Maylee Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhennon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.